need to confess that this has been one of the hardest sermon series that I've ever had to prepare for. It has been hard and it has been heavy. And Habakkuk is not one of those books, I think, that is particularly difficult to understand. The, the lessons that are laid out here about who God is and who we are and the way that this world works, they're, they're pretty clear, they're pretty easy to understand. But the difficulty comes in not understanding it, but believing it and living it, living by faith in these words that are laid out before us. And it's so difficult, I think, because it butts against everything that we want to be true about our lives, to be true about God, to be true about faith in Christ. We are pain-averse people. We like to do anything that we can to run away from pain, to make ourselves comfortable, to make ourselves happy and, and unfeeling. We've even invented, well, not we, but in America, we've invented this entire theology that goes these great lengths to make it so that you come to Christ and then you have a guarantee of happiness and wealth, success in every area of life, perfect health. The problem is that the only place that you can get that kind of kingdom without the cross of suffering is from the devil himself. That is diabolical teaching in the most literal sense. What what do you lose if you lose the theology of suffering? You lose Jesus. I was thinking about it this week and in trying to preserve these treasures, these secondary treasures of, of health and money and friends and comfort and fame, reputation, we... We lose the greatest treasure. You're clawing after these little trinkets when there's real solid gold before your eyes. And that, that is why God has chosen suffering as an instrument in this life. He's chosen suffering because with suffering, he steals away all of these other treasures that we might rely on, that we might grasp onto, bare-knuckled, and leaves us with Jesus. This isn't the sermon text, but turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 7. Paul writes, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Why are we spending a couple of weeks talking about suffering from the book of Habakkuk? Because we want to know Christ. That should have gotten an amen. Because we want to know Christ above all things. And if that means that these little trinkets that we've been holding on to are stripped away and are smashed underfoot, then let it be. Let anything happen that needs to happen that we may have Christ and be found in him. So that is why, despite the fact that it's hard, despite the fact that we don't want to meditate on pain and suffering, we're going to turn back to Habakkuk for round two. Today we're going to start in chapter one, verse 12. Bear that goal in mind as we wander through some more difficult verses. This is so that we may have Christ the truest treasure that will never be stripped away from us. So today we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2. It's a lot of verses. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of them verse by verse. But let's remember where we are with this book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived at the end of the kingdom of Judea, around the years 605 to 595, He had come just after the reign of Josiah. He had seen the the glorious kingdom of a godly king. This young man who came to the throne and instantly started tearing down the idols, started wiping away all of the ways in which the people of God were running away from the will of God. And everybody looked and they thought, this is our glorious future. This is when the kingdom is going to come The The Gentiles are going to come and look and say, how great is their God. But instead, Josiah dies as a young man. He dies and his son Jehoiakim comes to the throne. And what does Jehoiakim do? He reverses everything his dad did. He thrusts the nation into even deeper idolatry. And now Habakkuk is standing around looking and saying, why God? How long are you going to make us look at this suffering? When are you going to come and change all of this? And God responds to him. God responds in what we saw in chapter 1, starting in verse 5. God says, oh, I haven't been silent. I haven't been passive. In fact, I've been working on the level of the nations. I've been preparing the Babylonians. They seem like they're far off, but I am raising them up. I will bring them near, and they will come, and they will judge Judah. They will destroy, they will kill, they will plunder, and they will lead you away into captivity. It may seem harsh, but believe me, I, the Lord, am doing this. Well, that raises some questions of its own, doesn't it? It's one of those cases where the cure is worse than the disease, I mean, imagine you cry out to the Lord about the state of the American church. And God responds, don't worry. I'm raising up Al-Qaeda. I'll bring them close soon enough. So Habakkuk, full of faith, leans right back in. It's where we pick up in chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We'll read right now through 2.1. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. 
Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So as Habakkuk was crying out to God at the start of chapter 1, Lord, come and change something. What do you suppose he had in view? My guess is that what Habakkuk really wanted for God to do was to come and take Jehoiakim off the throne and put in another godly king. After all, we've seen what a godly king could do. And so isn't that the simplest answer? Isn't that the way that you and I would do things? But here, here God has decided instead to subject his own people to death and destruction and deportation. So Habakkuk naturally has the ground underneath his feet shaken. God has proclaimed that everything that he's known and grown up with is going to be snatched away. His future is going to be in a foreign land. His people will be decimated. So look at what Habakkuk does. He turns back to what he knows to be true of God, to the ways that God has revealed himself in the past. He says, are you not from everlasting? Are you not eternal, God? Okay, God is eternal. That means that this plan is not just some rash decision. God sees the ends. He sees the beginnings. He knows all. He controls all. So there must be good in this plan. This must be well thought out. He says, O Lord. Notice in your Bibles, that's in all capital letters. That is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. God, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who has been faithful to his people, Israel. You will be faithful now. My God, you're not just the God of the past. You are my God right now. You are my Holy One. And God is holy. That means that that everything that he does is just. Everything that he does is righteous and loving and for the good of his people. He goes on, you O rock, God is the rock. He is steadfast. He is immovable. And he is unchanging. So every word that God has said in the past is true for Habakkuk right now. And that's good news for him. Because in the past, God has said things like, Abraham, you are going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. He has said to the king David, David, you will never cease to have a descendant upon the throne. He has said to Isaiah, 
There is going to be one to take the throne in Israel who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So what does this lead Habakkuk to believe? Verse 12, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. No matter how things may look, no matter the death and decimation that comes upon the people, God will maintain a remnant. He will not utterly destroy his people. And then look at the beginning of verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This, of course, doesn't mean that when we sin, God covers his eyes and pretends not to see. It means that God hates He abhors evil. He cannot just look on that without his pure and holy heart being torn with wrath. So do you see what Habakkuk is doing here? The ground has shifted beneath his feet. Everything seems to be wiped away. Reality as he's known it is being shaken. And so he turns back to the truths about who God is. To build for himself a foundation that will never be shaken. My friends, this is why theology is so important. Theology, what we know to be true about God. Because there will come a day when everything that you have been judging as your reality will be shaken, will be torn away. Maybe that's the day that that they tell you you've got cancer. Or one of your children is dying. For me, that was when we were on the field as missionaries in Belarus. Everything was going great. We were expecting our first son. And then all of a sudden, I was struck with these sudden, severe panic attacks. Anxiety like I had never seen before, never known before. They were paralyzing. Now, I had always prided myself on my ability to control my body. I'm an athlete, after all. I I should be able to control this and to control my thoughts. Yet here I was, unable to sleep at night because I was certain that I wasn't going to wake up. Here I was, unable to eat many days, just couldn't force myself to swallow. My thoughts are going haywire. I can't force myself to stop thinking about death. I thought I was going crazy. And in the midst of all of that, where can I turn? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Over and over again, the words of truth that I had memorized long ago would go through my mind again and again. This is reality. Not what I think that I can perceive with my, with my own mind, with my own hands. No, reality is what is written right here. How is it going to be for you, my friend, in the day when God's ways confound you? In the day when you won't know what to stand on. When everything you thought you know about, knew you, about yourself and about the world just goes slipping away. 
Is your theology deep enough to keep your feet rooted in place? That's why Brett preaches the way that he does. That's why Gary chooses for us these wonderful songs. We need a God that can hold us. That is what Habakkuk is doing right here. So he firms up his theology. This is who God is. But that raises some more questions, doesn't it? If God is this God who is unchanging, who hates sin, then why do you look idly at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. It makes no sense that Babylon would come and judge the more righteous Judean nation and get away with it. Now, there's a little flaw in the logic here. The assumption that Habakkuk makes is that he sees enough and knows enough to judge who is really more righteous. There are some interesting places in the ministry of Jesus. Places like Matthew chapter 11, Luke chapter 10. Don't go there right now. But this is where Jesus is pronouncing judgment on unrepentant cities. And Jesus says things like, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for the Jewish city of Bethsaida. Why? Sodom definitely rebelled against God. They are held up all throughout the Bible as an example of great sin. And yet, the sin of Bethsaida will be judged more strictly because they have rejected a far greater revelation. Jesus himself was in Bethsaida performing miracles and they rejected him. The nation of Judea had the prophets, had the law of Moses, had the word of God before them and they rejected it. Who is more to blame? Who is more culpable? Who is more accountable on the day of judgment? That's not a game that we can play, folks. But neither can we play that holier-than-thou card. We cannot ever assume that we are the more righteous. Justice is in the hands of the Lord. It is His to repay. By the way... If you know of anyone who has received the revelation of Jesus Christ and has turned away, has refused to submit to the Lordship of Christ, let this be an example to you. Beg that person on behalf of Jesus to repent. Beg Jesus on behalf of that person that he would repent, for it will be more bearable in those days for the Babylonians than for the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. Habakkuk continues his complaint in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. It's, it's just survival of the fittest, God. Whoever is stronger, it's like the animals, it's like the fish in the sea. The stronger takes the higher place. Why aren't you doing more, God? Well, then he proceeds. 
proceeds to describe the ways of the Babylonians. And at first glance, this looks like just some wonderful imagery. He brings them up with a hook. He gathers them with his dragnet. But these are actually pictures of the way that the Babylonians acted with their prisoners, with their prey. We have records from the ancient world of the Babylonians leading prisoner trains, each with a flesh hook through the lip or another soft part of the body. The dragnet, they would gather their prisoners in these huge nets and then drag them, probably by their horses, along the rocky and dusty ground until they got to Babylon. These are horrible, wicked people. And yet it gets even worse. He sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. The the Babylonians would put images of their idols, their gods, on all of their weapons of war and their instruments of torture. And then when they'd get done with the battle, they would sacrifice to those instruments, showing that it, it wasn't just a victory of Babylonian might, It was a victory of their gods. So how in the world can God allow them to prosper? Habakkuk asked the million-dollar question in verse 17. Is he then to keep on mercilessly, uh, I'm sorry, keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Let's face it, friends. We look around this world, and often we have that same question. Look at the Fortune 500 richest men list. It's typically not the ones who who give the most in the church offering plate. It's typically not the people who have made it to the top by following the law of God and doing everything according to his will. How long is this going to last? So Habakkuk... Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower. Answer me, God. I'm not going anywhere until you do. And that brings us to probably the most important section in the entire book. Let's read together chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 5. The Lord answered me, Before we go on, the Lord answered him. We saw that earlier. We see that again now. Let that never cease to amaze you. Habakkuk stands there. Answer me, God. I'm not going anywhere. And God does. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So God answers Habakkuk. He gives him this vision, but he tells him, write it down. 
Now, this shouldn't be any surprise because God has often told his prophets to write down what he tells them. He told Isaiah to write it in a scroll. He, he told Jeremiah to write in a book. But here, notice, make it plain on tablets. Okay, thinking back, where else have we seen something written on tablets in the Old Testament? Go ahead, say it out. Ten Commandments. All right, there's one other place where we definitely see it. Deuteronomy 27.8. I don't expect you to know that by right off the top of your heads. But again, it deals with the law of God, the renewing of the covenant. This is something very important, something that is supposed to last, something that is unbreakable, a message that needs to be read by future generations. So he may run who reads it. Run. The idea here is of living out in obedience and run, not walk, quickly. This is a message that all should be able to read. It should be plain. It should be clear. It should be quickly obeyed. We see in verse 3, but it's a message that concerns the later time. But it is certain. There can be no doubting that it will happen. Even if it seems slow, just wait for it. It will come. Habakkuk lives in the interim. He has seen the beginning of God's judgment. He has heard the promise of fulfillment. But now he must wait. He must wait. He's confounded by the ways that God is working right now. How do you wait? Well, God says, there are two possible ways. Verse 4, the first one is the way of pride. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. This pride is constantly looking in upon ourselves. It's looking to ourselves for the answers. It's looking to ourselves for all of the benefits. Pride is never at rest. Verse 5, his greed is as white as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. Death never stops. Death is always taking another and another and another. So it is with the proud man. He always wants more and more and more for himself. Gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, clearly, God is immediately talking here about the Babylonians. They are constantly going out. They are proud of themselves. Their own might is their God. And they look within for redemption, for salvation. That should sound pretty familiar to us, too, though. The Babylonians weren't the first ones to live by pride. And they're certainly not the last. Think of our culture today. Think of our pop psychology. Think of the catchphrases that we hear. You've got to look out for number one. Be all that you can be, with my apologies to the army, of course. It's all about me. You are good enough. You're smart enough. Just look within. Find the hero that lies in you. On and on we could go. But the message that our culture delivers to us is, don't look out there. Don't look to anybody else. It's all about you pride. But there's another way to live. Just a couple of short words, but of such great importance. 
Verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous. Who is this righteous? Immediately, reading this verse, our minds should go back to a place like Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that Abraham believed God. Faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This righteous man is not righteous because he's so good in and of himself. All of his his righteousness, all of his goodness comes from faith. It is given to him from outside. And what is this faith? Faith in and of itself is looking outside of you, looking to someone else, looking to God for strength for empowerment, for the solution, for wisdom, for whatever it may be. So here, Habakkuk, this direct command to him, what do you do right now, Habakkuk, when God's ways confound you? Live by faith. Don't take matters into your own hands, Habakkuk. Don't go striving off, trying to solve all of these problems on your own. Don't go fleeing away from them either. Trust me. Believe me. All of the strength that you need, all of the wisdom that you need, it is in me. The righteous shall live by faith. In the New Testament, we'll, we'll see this verse in book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verse 38, where it's used in very much the same way. It's a call to perseverance, Trust in God right now, continually. Live by your faith. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Jewish scholars, in studying this verse, have said that this, it's not just the center of Habakkuk. It's the center of the entire Old Testament. They've said this is a summary of all of the Old Testament. And here's why. In Habakkuk, the people of God are facing the judgment of God, the deserved judgment of God. But how can you escape it? How can you live through the judgment of God? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, the answer has been the same. The righteous shall live by his faith. Think back to the first judgment of God. Genesis chapter 6, the flood and Noah. God offers a way out Noah, build an ark. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? There's a flood coming. What flood? Why should I build a boat when there's no water around here? But Noah built and he preached and nobody else believed him. But when he and his family, by faith, entered into that ark, they were saved. Think to the Passover in the book of Exodus. Moses comes and tells the people of God an avenging angel is going to go through the nation of Israel. Uh, I'm sorry, the nation of Egypt. And only if you kill a lamb and paint some blood over your door are you going to be saved. (laughs) Talk about ridiculous. An avenging angel marching through the land killing every firstborn child. And yet those who by faith put the blood on the doorpost, were saved. 
We could go on and on. There's, there's the snake in, in the desert in Numbers where the people of God, as a judgment of God, are being bitten by venomous snakes. And the people are thinking, okay, what's the way out? Let's just grab clubs and start killing the snakes, right? But God says, no. Make a bronze serpent and put him up on a pole. And anybody who stops and looks up at that serpent in faith will be saved. On and on we go. And so it comes as no surprise that here Habakkuk is told the righteous will live by faith. And then when we get to the New Testament, these verses are quoted again by Paul. Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.19, where he is talking about salvation from that great judgment, the judgment of sin in the final day should come as no surprise because all of these previous judgments point forward to that final day when all of the earth will stand before God and answer for what they have done in the flesh. And then there are two ways, two ways to live at that moment. You can either by pride turn to yourself, look within and say, God, I have been a good person. I've tried my best. I've tried to follow your rules. I've tried to help other people. In which case, you will be condemned and stand to face the fullness of God's wrath. Or there is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Whereas we say, there is nothing in me I stand entirely in Jesus. So what do we do when God's ways confound us? We live in that moment and eternally by faith in him. So that brings us to our final section. Verses 6 through 20. And we're not actually going to read these. Verses 6 through 20 are comprised mostly of a series of woes that are proclaimed on the Babylonians. And these woes, these five woes that we're going to see, they're all taunts from the conquered nations to their Babylonian captors. Because you see, God is not going to leave the Babylonian sin unpunished. So the first woe in verse 6, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Woe to this one who has been plundering others because his, his plunderers are going to rise up and plunder him. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. The Babylonians and others had built up these high fortresses. They built their walls thinking that this would keep them safe. But God says, oh no, the very stones will betray you and it will come crashing down upon your heads. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. They built their cities by the blood and the bones of slave laborers. And God says, it will all be for naught. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. They made their captives drink so that they could mock them and have sport of them. But God says, you've made others drink 
you will be made to drink my cup, the cup of wrath. Finally, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Woe to the person who makes an idol, trusts in it, bows down before it because it's worthless. It's wood. It's silent. It will never speak. Now, we could go on and on. There's a lot of deep truth with these woes. But instead, I want to focus our attention on a couple of verses that could get lost in the shuffle. You see, this is not just descriptive of the Babylonians. This is descriptive of all of human history from the beginning up until now and will be until the end. Human kingdom after human kingdom has risen up has sought after all the glory that they could find, has grabbed and grabbed greedily, only to see it come crumbling down. And where is that all now? Look at verse 13, 14. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where today is the empire of Genghis Khan? Where is the empire of Napoleon or Hitler? Where are the financial empires of yesterday's billionaires? Where's the glory of last year's champion? Does anybody even remember who won the World Series in 1982? If you do, talk to me afterwards. We've got to get some other knowledge into your head, right? Human glory comes to an end so quickly, so quickly. There's only one kingdom that lasts. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Make no mistake about that. This whole earth will be filled, not just with the glory of the Lord. Because even right now, even at this moment, the entire earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. Look at every blade of grass, every blooming tree, every cell in our body. They are screaming out that our God is glorious. But it says here that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That involves us. That involves beings with consciousness. We will know the glory of the Lord here on earth, and not just us. All of those proud, all of those who now reject the revelation and the glory of God, they will know it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that God is glorious. Those who are proud will confess that to their utter shame and eternal judgment. Those of us who live by faith will declare that with tears of joy streaming down our faces. So my friends, what is worth living for? What is worth dying for? Let us put to death all of our vain glory of human achievement, the 
the success, the career that we can build for ourselves, the wealth that we can accumulate, all of those trinkets we talked about at the beginning, let that all die because only the glory of the Lord, only his kingdom will last. What are you living for, my friend? What can we say in response to this kind of revelation of God? The God that will be praised by all of creation. Look at verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is not a rebuke of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, how dare you speak to God and demand an answer? Now, this comes directly after the condemnation of the idol worshiper. Why? Because the idol is silent. But not our God. No, we keep silence before him because he surely will speak. Before the God that will reign over all of creation, that will be praised by all of creation, we stand in expectant silence, in awestruck wonder, waiting for him to move, waiting for him to perform exactly what he has promised he will do. God will speak. God will act. And so in the meantime, when his ways confound us, we look to that future promise. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. My friends, do you know how the history of Judea goes from here? Indeed, Babylon comes in. Babylon conquers. They take away the the Jews into captivity, and it's horrible. But we read in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, these words. How great are his signs. This is speaking of the Lord. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Do you know who speaks these words? It's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Indeed, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Even this evil king will proclaim it. So let us stand in awestruck silence before him. My friends, today we've asked, what do you do when the ways of God confound you? Habakkuk has shown us. We look to the past. We look to the ways that God has revealed himself to us. And we stand firmly on the foundation of God. We look to the present. We live by faith in what God has said. Right now, day after day, we persevere in faith. And we look to the future, to that glorious day when the Lord will come. The trumpet shall resound, 
and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so today, we have a perfect way to do just that. The Lord's table is spread before us. It's a look back at Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. It's a look at the present. How am I living by faith right now? And it's a look to the future, to that glorious day when Jesus will come back to claim his own. So today, won't you bring all of your questions, all of your wondering, why are you doing this in my life, and all of your suffering, and bring it to this table? Rest in faith in the promises of God today. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that so often your ways do not make sense to us. Help us to live by faith. You have shown us that you are a good and faithful and righteous God. We can trust you. Help us to live by faith right now. Help us to look outside of ourselves, to look to you for strength. Give us assurance of that promised future where you will come and you will surely reign. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.